If you'd like, you may be opening your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12. That will be the basis of our text of our lesson in just a moment. One uh, announcement that I forgot to make was Brother Kirk Farber had surgery this past Thursday on his back, and Kirk is now at home this morning. He did well through the surgery, and um, doctors say that once he gets healed a little bit, he'll need to get involved in a lot of physical activities and strengthen that back, and he's looking forward to that day. So please pray for him and Michelle and their entire family. I have the great privilege every day of working with college-age and young professional-aged men and women. It is a genuine blessing and privilege to work with a group of young people we have assembled here at university and who go through uh, the McCarty Student Center. Two examples of those young people this morning were Jacob leading us in a, in a good prayer and godly prayer, and we appreciate that. And my grandson doing such a great job in planning the song service so that all things built up to this point, and we talked about the great things that God has done. As we begin the month of December, we're looking at exalted and assured of who God is. And I'd like to, us to direct our minds in thinking this morning about the great things that God has done for us, and that will give us assurance in a day in which we have little to, well, we have a lot of unsure situations. We know God is sure, and we know God promised never to leave us nor forsake us. We live in an uncertain time, and you young people are going to have to live and grow up through that and battle through that and, and be leaders in those times. And so I pray that you would stand as you ought and study and be prepared for that. We as older people, we're assured, and we know who God is. We know he's there, and we know the great things that he has done. I just want us to remind ourselves of a few of those this morning. As we do that, we look at 1 Samuel 12, and appreciate Andrew's reading those verses that dealt with that. Israel has come to Samuel in the context, have asked that they have a king to rule them like all the nations round about. God was their king. God was their commander. God had brought them up as it were on eagle's wings. He had not forsaken them. He had given them things. He had he kept every one of his promises. Every, everything he said he would do, he had done. And yet they still wanted a king like everybody else had. And so it, it discouraged Samuel, disappointed Samuel. But God said, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. I'll give them a king. And so in 1 Samuel 11 and verse 30, I mean verse 15, preceding verse 12, chapter 12, the Bible says, So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And then you get to chapter 12. And Samuel will begin this in verses 1 and 2 and say that he is now old. He is gray-headed. And he presents to them their king. In verses 3 through 5, Samuel will say that 
he will claim his integrity with Israel, that he has done nothing wrong. He, is, he has been who he said he was. He had been genuine and sincere with them. In doing that, beginning in verse 6 and going down through verse 12, he will go back over and rehearse some of the good things and great things that God had done for their ancestors. God had done for them and brought them out to where they were and given them all the land and how he, how he led them out. And yet the people, he would say in the midst of his discourse there, rejected God. And every time that they went away from God, they would cry to God and God would raise up a savior. God would raise up a judge and bring them back. And on and on it goes. In verses 13 through 18, Samuel says that you have sinned in asking for a king. And to prove this to you, he's going to pray that God will bring thunder and light, thunder and rain to them. And he prayed, and it was thunder, and it rained. And the people said, we have sinned in asking for this king. We acknowledge our sin. Verses 22 and then on and following, Samuel will declare unto them the right and the good way. In verse 24 again, he says, Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. That's what God wanted from Adam and Eve. That's what God wants from the last person who'll ever live on this earth. God wants us to serve him with a true and honest heart with all of our hearts. And he says, Here's your motivation. For consider what great things he has done for you. But then he puts the warning there. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. That's not what God wants. God wants them to serve him with a true and honest heart. And that's what God wants from us. So as we think about that this morning, let's ask ourselves a question as we begin. Do we serve God with a true and honest heart? And do we serve God with all of our hearts? Do we give him the very best that we have? And then we're going to consider some great things God has done to assure us and to lay the foundation for this month's teaching. Number one, God has done great things in his creation. In Genesis 1 and verse 1, as we open the first page of the Bible, the Bible declares, In the beginning God made the heaven and the earth. That is a powerful and profound statement. Simple and yet profound. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. If that statement is not true, then we can depend on nothing else past that to the rest of the Bible. If God did not create heaven and earth in the beginning, then how do we know anything is true? However, if that one statement is true, then the rest of the Bible is just as true. We have assurance When God said, I made or created the heaven and the earth in the beginning, I did that. He spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it stood fast, Psalm 33, 6 and 9. The Lord said, let there be light. The Lord said, let dry land appear. The Lord said this and the Lord said that. And it came to be. There was power in his word. 
He provides hope and assurance for me and you in that one statement. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the creation of the world, God created things that will be are essential in sustaining our lives. The water cycle, how the water falls from heaven, is absorbed into the earth, is given out in the plants and in the uh, and for our good to have water to drink, and how then it goes back to God in, in, in evaporation, and it comes back down, and the water cycle continues and continues. And as many, I mean, I know I have known a lot of farmers in my lifetime, majority of whom give God credit for their crops and their, and their bounty. What farmer would it be who could raise soybeans or cotton or, or whatever the, product, the uh, plant might be if water didn't fall from heaven? And if water didn't go back to heaven to fall again? We wouldn't have grass to cut. Aren't you grateful we have grass to cut? Aren't, we wouldn't have weeds to hoe out of a garden. But we wouldn't have the products we have. We wouldn't have the food we have. Animals wouldn't have water to drink. We wouldn't have water to drink. We couldn't sustain our lives without God's water cycle. That's in the creation. He's done great things for us. But in that creation, the Bible says in Romans 1 and verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, that is in his creation, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul, in the context, will be talking about the Gentiles who forgot God. They didn't glorify God. They weren't thankful. Their foolish hearts were turned to idols and idolatry and darkness because they saw God's creation and they saw the Godhead in that creation. God the Father, the architect. God the Son, or the Word in the beginning, who was the active agent. Revelation 3 and verse 14 says, He was the beginning of the creation. The ark, the Greek word is there. The spark or the beginning of that creation. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John 1 and verse 3. Colossians 1 and verse 16, He created all things through Him and for Him. And then there's the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit. Job said in Job 26 and verse 13 that he, by his spirit, he garnished the heavens. He decorated the heavens. He organized the creation. God the Father planned. God the, the Word executed. God the Holy Spirit organized. And Paul said when the world sees that creation and says there is no God, they have no excuse to say that. And then God created man in his own image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Man was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, Psalm 8 and verse 8, Hebrews 2, verse 9. He created us with wonderful bodies, Psalm 139, beginning at verse 14. David declared, I'm wonderfully made, I'm we have amazing bodies. We could spend a long time discussing the body and the functions of the body and how all those things come together for us in this one body, all the miles of blood vessels and all the things that happen, intake of, of air and giving off of, of uh, 
uh, carbon dioxide and then the trees taking that in and giving us back oxygen. How all those things work together for our sustention, or our substance, being able to be sustained. But yet we're made in the image of God. There's a part of William, and there's a part of Judy, and there's a part of Orrin that'll never go out of existence. We have that part of us. When we are conceived, we are given that that soul that never goes out of existence. And that soul that one day will stand before the Son of God and give an account of life in, in this life. But that soul who has the opportunity to hear the Son say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. And we are able to live forever in the presence of God and His Son and the Holy Spirit. We have the ability to reason and deduce. We have the ability to think and, and make logical decisions. We have, the, we have the ability to make illogical decisions. We have the ability to make wrong decisions. We have freedom of choice. We're not robots. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And we were made to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And that's our purpose on this earth. We're made in God's image. So, number one... There is the creation. Great things God had done in creation. Number two, great things God did through Christ. John 3 and verse 16. He so loved the world. Adverb of manner. So loved. How much did God love the world? He loved it so much that he sent his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The idea of believing there is the idea of obedience and encompasses all of it. Not just acknowledging mental assent that God's there or his son's there. But if we believe it, we'll obey him. His son died instead of David Jones. He died for David Jones. He died because of David Jones. But he died instead of David Jones dying. David Jones deserves to die. All of us deserved to die. One sin before the just God has to be paid for, has to be accounted for. And Jesus came to take every one of those sins to the cross, 1 Peter 2, 24. And to pay that price, we couldn't pay. For the grace of God hath appeared unto all men. Titus 1, Titus 2, verse 11. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldliness, we should live soberly righteous and godly in this present world. Soberly with ourselves, gravely alert, righteously with our brethren, and godly before the God of heaven. Encompassing all of our lives, all the parts of our lives. The grace of God appeared unto all men. Paul said, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 15. Could you and I put into words exactly with every word known in man's vocabulary, would we be able to honestly describe the gift that God gave us in his son? Revelation 13 and verse 8 says that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. We read in Ephesians 1 about the plan, how God had that before the foundation of the world. We get a picture, at least in our minds, that there was this plan 
to create this universe, there was this plan to create man so that we could reciprocate the love back to God. But in that plan, man would sin because he had freedom of choice. And provision was made in heaven before the creation of mankind that if and when man sinned, God would redeem him. And the son would give his life. The perfect sacrifice for the perfect man, Adam, who sinned in the garden to justify God and to, and to satisfy God's justice that he might be just and righteous. And so when Jesus left heaven to come to this earth, he came with a mission. That mission was to die. That mission was to be rejected by all men. Involved in that would be torture at the scourging post. Rejection by his own family and by his disciples, by the world. There would be ridicule. There would be harassment. There would be unbelief. There would be betrayal by one of his closest disciples. And yet from the cross, his attitude was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How would you and I put that into words to adequately describe that? Great things God has done through Christ in redeeming mankind and and reconciling us to him through Jesus Christ. That we should be called at this time the sons of God, 1 John 3, 1 and 2. And we don't know what we're going to be like. Somebody says, I know. Well, the Bible says you don't know, so you don't know. We don't know what we'll be like, but we know this. We will be like him, for we will see him as he is. That's good enough for me, to be like the Christ and to sit with him in his throne, Revelation 3.21, as he sat down with his father and his. Yes, great things God has done through Christ. Number three, great things God has done through his covenants that he made with man. Not only the creation, not only Christ, but the covenants that God made. In the beginning, there was a patriarchal law. Patriarchal law lasted 2,500 years, estimate, from Adam to the cross, I mean to uh, Sinai. And under that law, the heads of the families were spoken to and they passed that down to their families. Which is a reason why eventually man went away from God because he quit passing it down and they they quit obeying that which was passed down. But then you get to Mount Sinai. And God leads his children out under the mighty hand of Moses, under God's mighty hand through Moses, leads them through the Red Sea. And you wonder, 
at least I do. You get to the Red Sea and it's parted and, and there's no doubt that water was standing on each side because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4 that they were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So there had to be water encompassing them, both water and vapor in the cloud. And they walked across on dry land. Would you? Would you? Would you? Would I? Step out into a dry seabed with water standing on both sides and, and, and expect to walk across without the water caving in? Think about the faith that took to step out and to walk across the Red Sea. And what amazes me is that in less than two months later, they build a golden calf and they're dancing around the golden calf wishing they were back in Egypt. I don't understand how fickle people can be so quickly. But they were. Yet at Mount Sinai, God made a promise with them. In Exodus chapter 19, and beginning at verse number 3, Moses writes for us, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And so then you have the list of the Ten Commandments, and then you have a list of all the mosaical laws that were very detailed. When, when Moses will take them eventually to the plains of Moab, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, you'll read where the second law, where Moses says, this is the covenant that God made with your fathers. And then he went back over some of that again to remind them, God made a covenant with you. And the people said in the beginning, we will obey God. But then God's plan had to carry on. And so for those 1,500 years, you had the law of Moses in place. And then Jesus came. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, he didn't come to destroy that law, but to fulfill it. And so he began to teach them the law correctly. He began to, and he lived that law perfectly in front of them. And then from the cross... John 19 and verse 30 says, the last thing Jesus said before he died, it is finished. Teleos, teleo, the Greek word there, meaning complete, meaning fulfilled. I have fulfilled that law. So that first covenant was then taken out of the way, the old covenant. 
at the cross. Colossians 2.14 says that Jesus nailed it to his cross. Hebrews writer says in Hebrews 8 and verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Better promises, eternal life, all spiritual blessings in Christ, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the innocent Lamb of God, not the blood of bulls and goats, which could not take away sin, not a covenant that could not be kept, and one sin basically should have meant death for that individual. He would go on to say in Hebrews 10, verse 9, Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that is, will, that he might establish the second. And then verse nine, verse 10 says, By that will, what? The second will. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. No more will men have to go on the great day of atonement every year into the most holy place and offer blood for himself and for people. Hebrews 10 says Jesus did it once for all time's sake. Eternally offered that. Still people have a problem understanding that that law is done away with. Look at Galatians 3 with me and begin with me at verse 15. Galatians 3, beginning at verse 15. Paul says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it's only a man's covenant, yet if it's confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. In other words, if, we make, if you make a covenant with, I make a covenant with Brother Buddy here, then that covenant should be binding. Should be binding. And if it's confirmed, then no one else can add to it or annul it, that covenant. Now to Abraham and his seed were promises made, verse 16. He says, he does not say to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed, which is Christ. This I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, confirmed that twice more times over. I will bless you, and in your I'll make you a blessing to all people and all people will be blessed through your seed. The law was established after the promise. And Paul says that that law did not make the promise of no, of no avail. In fact, he says it came 430 years later. I love timelines. Estimated Abraham was called in 1925 B.C. And the law of Moses was given about 1495 B.C. If you subtract those numbers, you're going to get 430. God was right. 430 years after the promise was made, God made a law. And he says in verse 18, if the inheritance was supposed to be of that law, it was no longer a promise. But God gave it by promise. 
Then the Jews asked, then what was the, what was the purpose of the law? Verse 19. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come. Till, adverb of time, till the seed. And we already know that seed is Christ. The law was to last until Christ came. In verse 21 he says, is the law then against the promises? No. For if it had been a law which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But since that law didn't give life, righteousness is not by that law. In verse 22, the scripture has confined all unto sin, Jew and Gentile, that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. But before that faith came, we were guarded under the law, kept by faith, kept from the faith, which should after be revealed. Therefore, the law, law of Moses, was a tutor, personal tutor, went with you everywhere you went, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But when faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as were baptized into Christ, you put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed, not according to the law, but heirs according to the promise. God did great things, giving us the covenants. We have the new covenant, which was given to us by Christ, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. That was given to us for the obedience of faith, Romans, 6, Romans chapter 1, verse 5, Romans chapter 16, verses 25 and 26. And it came by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. And then last, God did great things. When he created the church. You have creation. You have Christ. You have the covenants. You have the church. In Ephesians chapter 3. Beginning at verse 8. I guess everybody has. Favorite passages. When someone passes away. oftentimes you'll go and talk to the family. And you'll say did that person have certain passages that were very special to them. So I'm saying now in front of a hundred something people who are living that when I die, this is a passage that means a whole lot to me. Beginning in Ephesians 3 and verse 8, to me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages had been hid in God who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brethren, when people say, that the church is not important. When the people say that one church is as good as another church, those people don't understand Ephesians 3, 8 through 11. They don't understand that the Bible says that through the church, the multi-sided manifold wisdom of God is shown and that it was his eternal purpose in Christ Jesus to bring the church into existence. The price that that was paid 
was the blood of Christ, Acts 20, verse 28. It was his mission on earth, Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church, and not even death will stop it. But I want you to see one more thing. I want you to see the Godhead one more time in the spiritual creation. The physical creation, I pointed that out. Spiritual creation. God the Father was the architect of the church. He was the architect. Jesus was the executor of that. He came and died for it. And the Holy Spirit organized that through the giving of the inspired word of God. And I submit to you that when somebody looks at the church, they are without excuse to believe in more than one church and to not believe in God and not to believe in the unity of the Godhead any more than Paul said, you can't look at the world and not understand the unity of the Godhead and the power of it. And in the church... And through the church, we're adopted as children. Through the church, we're added to the saved, Acts 2.47. We're the family of God, Ephesians 3 and verse 15. We are the body of Christ, and he's the head of that body. Ephesians 3.21 says we give glory to God in the church. The Bible doesn't say we give God the glory anywhere else but through the church. And we are then the bride of Christ. Revelation 21, 2, 9, and 17. Christ has one bride. Just like God's word says one man should have one bride. And when one man ought to be faithful to that one bride, Christ is faithful to us. And that one bride ought to be faithful to that one husband, the church is supposed to be faithful to God, to Christ, the bridegroom. God is to be feared and obeyed because of the great things he has done. He created all things for his pleasure. He sent the Christ to die instead of us. He inspired two covenants, one temporary, one to be the final will that would judge us in our day. He created the church for his family. One day Christ will come back to get that kingdom, the church, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and he'll take it and present it to the Father on that day. Are we ready for that day? Because that day is coming. Nothing else may take place in this life from this moment on. I don't know. You don't know what time. First song, chant let us in. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. I don't know if we're going to live five more minutes. But I know this. Judgment day is coming. Guaranteed. Because God raised his son from the dead, Acts 17, 30, and 31, and assured all men that they would come. God has done great things. Somebody says, but yeah, but preacher, your way is just too simple. I want something magnificent. I want something over the top. I want something outstanding. We read a little example about that in the Old Testament. Naaman. He was a great man, a great captain of the Syrian army. Man of valor. Won a lot of battles, the Bible says. But he was a leper. 
He was sent to Elisha. And Elisha didn't even go out to him. He sent his servant out. Told him to go wash seven times in the muddy Jordan and you'll be clean. That infuriated this great man who thought everything should be done great. So he walked away. And his servant said to him, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you have not done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? God's done the great things for us. We don't have to do something over the top and great. All we have to do is wash and be clean according to our law. By repenting of our sins, confessing our faith in Christ, and being washed in the blood of the Lamb through baptism, to have our sins washed away, added to the Lamb's book of life, and added to the church, added to the saved, become the family children of God who live in hope and assurance one day heaven will be theirs. Are you ready for that day? If you're here this morning and you have done that, and yet somehow another life has drawn you back into its clutches, caused you to become indifferent, maybe cynical, has taken you away from your first love. Christ said to the church at Ephesus, you need to repent because you've left your first love. He would say the same thing to members of the church today who have walked away. You need to repent. Come back to your first love. If we can help with any of those things, the Lord's invitation is extended to you while together we stand and while we sing.